This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three amazing people, Super Inframan, Allison Cook, and Stacy Sherwood. If you want to become a patron or a sponsor, go to wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And I am very pleased to have as my guest tonight, Mr. Gregory Little. Hi, Greg. Hi, how are you doing? And it's a pleasure. I've heard a lot of your shows, uh, never talked to you directly, though. So, yeah, this is the first time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, yes. And, and th thank you for agreeing to come on. I've been, uh, like I said before we started, I've had questions for you for over 20 years now. Because uh, I don't have time for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I saw you on all those documentaries about Atlantis and you diving on the Bimini Road and stuff like that. And, you know, and then you did the stuff with giants. But now you have this new book with yes. Andrew Collins, Origin of the Gods. And uh, this is also fantastic. And I feel like this is sort of a culmination of all your work in a sense. Uh, in a way, it is. Uh, it's really the first time that I started uh, writing about this. And actually, the theory was my part of it was presented in 1984 uh, in my first book. So. Uh, I've been down this road. It's like, where did this road go? Well, it's led me here, and it just keeps on going. And there's more information. Uh, I actually cut about half of what I wrote out of this book. Oh. Uh, and I know Andrew cut massive portions out, too, because we had a word count uh, uh, requirement from the publisher. And so I cut about half of it out. Uh, and maybe that's why you have a lot of questions, because I probably would have explained a whole <laughs> lot more if I could have. And this book is, it's out on Inner Traditions, Bear and Company. Um, and you're looking at 345 with the index, but you have a very long index and footnote section. Yeah. So you're looking at about 300 pages with you writing the first half and Andrew writing the second half. Yeah. And uh, the type is fairly small, though. That's that's yeah. an issue, but that's the way it is. And in fact, with publishing, paper has now become a big issue. But that, again, that's that's another problem. So it's a uh, small type or not. It's a very easy read. You know, you're not you're not it's you don't feel like you're slogging through it. It goes very quickly. A little too quick, yeah. honestly. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I try to look, I write for the general public, even in my profession, in my profession, I try to write very down to earth and explain things as simply as I possibly can. I don't try to obfuscate anything. Uh, I try to use uh, relative. I just didn't use a simple word. It just dawned on me. I shouldn't have said obfuscate, <laughs> but uh, I try to write very simply uh, and explain things very straightforward without hiding much. So, uh, but thank you for that. That I take that all that as a compliment. It, it, uh, it is meant that way. Um, so let's let's. I don't even know where to start here because you you deal with. All kinds of stuff. You deal a lot with UFOs, which I don't think people would expect from Origins of the Gods as the title. Um, but you deal, uh, man, you go from Native American stuff to Jung to um, like like channeling to UFOs, all yeah. in, in the space of about 142 pages. 
and uh, also the tech aspect of this, which I definitely want to get into before we're done tonight, because that's uh, I think people need to hear more about that. But let's let's start with let's start with EMF radiation and what that can do to us. Okay. Well, EMF is electromagnetic field, so that's what it stands for, and we're surrounded by electromagnetic fields, particularly human-produced electromagnetic fields today. And so the reason they're important, we'll, I'll explain what, a little more about them in a minute, but the reason they're important is in the book is because the book is trying to explain ancient alien reports, ancient reports of angels, mystical experiences people had, modern UFOs, abductions, the, the contactee movement from the 1950s, actually the late 40s through the 60s, uh, apparitional phenomena, even people like Joan of Arc and Edgar Casey, And what Andrew and I have tried to do is come up with a sort of comprehensive and actually a surprising explanation for that whole kind of mess of things that appear to be unconnected. Uh, I've met a lot of people in the UFO field who have one explanation for UFOs, and that is that UFOs are... Uh, nuts and bolts craft from other worlds yeah. that they are that they're inhabited by aliens and they're visiting us for whatever reason uh, and that uh, may be true in some cases uh, in fact I think it it probably is true in some cases but the thing that ties all of these elements together is electromagnetic energy. And so the electromagnetic field, people, anybody listening to this, they are looking at it right now. If their eyes are opening or open, they are looking at electromagnetic energy because light is electromagnetic energy. Visible light lies right in the middle of it. Uh, they may know that uh, most people know that owls can see heat signatures of animals, uh, and that is infrared. Infrared light we cannot see but an owl can. So anything that's alive is generating an electromagnetic field in that heat signature of infrared light. And of course, there's also ultraviolet, which causes sunburns. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why when you lay in the sun, you get a sunburn. And on that end of the spectrum, it goes all the way to uh, TV, the, the old televisions that used to have an antenna, which are still around. They still broadcast. But broadcast television is putting an electromagnetic pulse out into the environment. And TV antennas can pick it up. And that's what you see on a television. But we can't see those. Also, cell phones, microwaves of all different kinds, all of them produce electromagnetic fields. And the Earth itself produces an electromagnetic field. Huge amount of research on that. It's called the Schumann resonance, uh, and it's a vibrational frequency of electromagnetic energy. And on that side, it goes all the way to what are called very, very low frequency waves, which actually the U.S. Navy has done a lot of research with. There was a time... Uh, I believe it was in the 80s when the Navy put a many miles long antenna on the bottom of one of the Great Lakes. And that antenna was used to communicate with submarines everywhere around the world. However, they found that that frequency that they were using 
caused health problems, so they ceased using it. On the other end of the freq- of the uh, electromagnetic energy spectrum, it goes all the way up to cosmic rays. Uh, the frequencies get faster and faster, and the waves actually get smaller and smaller. And of course, cosmic rays uh, can be very dangerous and cosmic particles and so on. So electromagnetic energy is pretty much everywhere. Every cell phone, every Wi-Fi, Uh, All of the cell phone towers around produce electromagnetic energy. Tons of research in that. Uh, There was a neuropsychologist in Canada named Michael Persinger, who for decades did research on electromagnetic fields being focused in the brain. Uh, He had, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And he produced what are identical to UFO experiences and UFO abductions and angels appearing. And some people claim to have met God using his device, which was inside a copper shielded room, which is a Faraday cage. So there's been tons of research on. Of course, I think a lot of Persinger's research helped the U.S. Navy develop a lot of their devices that they have today, uh, weaponized, whatever you want to call them, uh, based on electromagnetic energy. Lasers produce electromagnetic energy. Uh, The point of a laser where it points out whatever it hits or wherever the focal point is produces a lot of electromagnetic energy. So that's what EM energy is. Everything produces and reflects electromagnetic energy. The sun puts it out. Again, I said light. Light is electromagnetic energy. But visible light makes up less than 5% of the entire thing. And if we could see the whole EM spectrum, we wouldn't see anything because we'd be blinded because yeah. it's around us all the time. And, and, I, and I wonder, it's one of the things I've speculated is when people go out into the woods, they're getting away from some of the man-made signals where they're not being swamped with them like they are in cities and stuff. And they have paranormal experiences. Is it because their their minds are now not swamped with these these signals and they're more open to the natural signals that are there? Well, that's that's a really important question. I'm actually glad you brought that up. There is research in that uh, the Earth's the Earth's ambient frequency, I said, was the Schumann resonance, yeah. uh, and it, it's a vibrational uh, it's a vibrational electromagnetic field. And the human brain also produces electromagnetic fields, too. Everything you think, everything you feel and do is producing a a different electromagnetic pattern in your brain. So if we hooked up an electroencephalograph to your brain and and looked at the frequency, there is uh, a waking, uh, full waking consciousness is beta waves. Uh, and then you, if you start to meditate right on the cusp of meditation where you hit theta waves is where you hit the Schumann frequency or the Schumann resonance, which is the Earth's ambient frequency. In evolution, there's a lot of research saying that all life on Earth evolved within that Schumann resonance. So we have a link to that. So when you get to that, yes, you are much more prone to having what I would call paranormal experiences. But yeah, you you need to get away from all the human-based stuff. And I'll add one more thing. As EM, as, as electromagnetic pollution occurs, which is, like I say, it's everywhere, as it's increased in strength and increased in numbers. What has, what has happened is that we have experienced in psychology and psychiatry 
a huge increase in post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression. And it's not just the pandemic that's done this. This was happening decades ago. It started being noticed. And that's what I am. I'm a psychologist uh, by profession. So this has been noticed for years. There has been research, a lot of anecdotal research that links the proliferation of electromagnetic fields with the increase in these mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I buy into that. Now, there's not a lot of research and not a lot of funding for research in that field, maybe for obvious reasons. Uh, We are not going to stop the use of cell phones. That's not going to happen. Nor are we going to stop the increased proliferation of Wi-Fi signals and all that. All of it is electromagnetic in nature. It may have something to do with cancer, although they tell us over and over it doesn't if you use cell phones at a small level. If you don't put the phone up to your ear, this is actually in the books that they send, or they used to give you a little tiny pamphlet with your cell phone. It had tiny little print, and on the very last pages it would say, don't hold the cell phone against your body. Don't use it up against your ear more than an hour and a half a day. And, of course, people do. And now today people are using little electromagnetic things in their ears. It's called Bluetooth. You stick those in your ears so you're producing EM fields on both ears. Uh, So I don't want to go a lot further with that. But electromagnetic fields are the key to this. I didn't come up with that. It was two people. It was John Keel uh, who first talked about this and also Carl Jung had some clues and hints about this in his writings back in the 1950s or so. Yeah, and you talk about how people misunderstand Kiel or uh, misunderstand Jung in your book. Yeah. Uh, Kiel, Jung was greatly misunderstood. Everybody thinks Kiel said that UFOs, you know, his last book, 19, 1959 is when the hardcover came out of Kiel. Of, keep saying Kiel, yeah. Carl Jung's last book. It was called Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky. Yeah. And Jung was very, very interested in the contact D reports. He was very interested in why are all these UFO reports being made now? He did link it to the Cold War and the possibility of nuclear annihilation for the entire population of Earth. Uh, And he said something is seen. One doesn't know what. He never said that they were uh, extraterrestrial craft or that they were nuts and bolts. But he said it's pretty clear something's there. And everybody thinks that Keel said it's all in your head, that it's all psychological and it's all in your head. It's not. He said over and over, something is seen. One doesn't know what. And then he said what happens is we interpret what we see based upon our our beliefs that we already hold. For example, a person who believes that UFOs are extraterrestrial, when they see something that looks like, I'll call it a flying saucer, instantly they're going to project their belief onto the object that they see and say, I'm seeing a flying saucer with aliens in it or extraterrestrials in it. That's, that is basically what Jung said. Other people might interpret it as an angel. If they're very, very religious or spiritual and they believe in angels, they may see angels. Other people might see what they interpret as extraterrestrial aliens. That is what Jung said about it. But he said it's very clear something very real is happening. And he said that whatever it is, this is where the EM part comes in, the electromagnetic part. He said that whatever it is, 
It appears to be an archetype, which that uh, we can take hours to discuss what he meant by archetypes. He said that they appear to be archetypes, and what they are doing is they are changing their frequency from the ultraviolet end of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. The ultraviolet end is invisible into the visible light portion of the spectrum so we can interact with them. And I was astonished when I very first read that. And he said that archetypes, which most people think of as symbols, actually exist in objective reality. And they can manifest through this process. And he he used the term psychoid. A psychoid factor is something that is thought to be like a symbol, but it manifests into physical reality, at least temporarily. So that was Jung's portion of it. Almost everybody skipped over that because they didn't understand it. They didn't understand what he meant by any of that. And that that leads right into Kiel's super spectrum idea of of these things moving in from the ultraviolet or moving in from the infrared and going yes. out through the other. Um, one of the one of the things that I noted is that, you know, anytime someone takes a picture of of anything paranormal, it tends to be blurry. Yeah. You know, I mean that's a that's an obvious, you know, everyone knows this this joke that, you know, people even say things like, well, Bigfoot's blurry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But infrared light and stuff will f- cause cameras to malfunction and not focus. Well, the infrared forms would themselves be blurry anyway. Right. Uh, again, with Jung, we are put, we are projecting an interpretation using what yeah. is already in our own belief system. We do this all the time. Uh, the simplest example I can give a projection uh, comes from the song Some Enchanted Evening. It's Some Enchanted Evening, you will see a stranger, a stranger across the crowded room, and you're going to fall in love. It's love at first sight. Well, what happens is in the back of our heads, I, I say the back of our heads, in our deep in our mind, in our unconscious, all of us have an ideal mate somebody that you know we're sexually attracted to physically attracted to they have certain characteristics certain color of hair and all that and occasionally from time to time we will observe someone that has those characteristics so what happens is it's almost like a camera comes out of our forehead and it projects onto that person all of the ideal yeah. characteristics we have. That is what causes, at least in psychology, that is the explanation of love at first sight. We are projecting our own belief system, our own likes and dislikes onto another person who is a convenient screen for that projection. So with Jung, he's saying UFOs are literally like a movie screen and we are projecting our own interpretation. So the physical object or whatever the object is, it, it's real, but our but the but what it really is, we don't know. We're projecting yeah. our belief system onto it. That was Jung's idea. Now, now Keel took it a little bit differently with that. Keel had some of the same ideas, uh, and actually, in this in this sense, I go along with Keel, and that is that this thing that we are interacting with, this electromagnetic thing, when it manifests, when it manifests itself into the visible light spectrum, it basically creates an interaction sphere. And in that interaction sphere, it literally is reading our projections and it is adjusting and responding in accordance with our expectations. Meaning that somebody in modern times isn't going to see a giant angel with wings 
they're going to see something else. They're going to see maybe what they consider an alien. I've talked to Whitley Strieber about this many times. I talked to Whitley a couple of weeks ago, uh, and Whitley actually believes a lot of this. Whitley thinks that we do, in fact, um, that whatever's going on inside of us has something to do with the appearance and behavior that these beings take on, that they are interacting with us and appearing in accordance with our belief system. So it explains fairies from old times, uh, the fairy lore. It explains angels if you go way back in time uh, because it's a cultural adjustment. So these things are taking an appearance that adjusts to your culture, your belief system, uh, and it it adjusts to your expectations in this interaction sphere. That's what this is all about. So what is the actual thing? That's that's the question here. And that's what we tried to explain in the book. When when uh, even when dealing with like especially one off monster accounts, the really weird ones, I, I suspect that what's happening is people are encountering this this type of energy or some kind of wandering bit of consciousness and their brain has no no paradigm for it. Yes, you know? that's and one then, great way. Yeah. And they're just going, I don't know. It's scary because I don't know what it is. It must be a monster. And then their brain. Well, that's puts. what you'd expect it to to run into in some remote woods somewhere. Right. Absolutely. Right. And I think once you get a a you know someone has a Bigfoot report of a particular type of Bigfoot, then it sort of has a form for people to jump to when they also encounter it. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the idea completely. Uh, and the thing that people just don't get is how can that happen? Yeah. Uh, how can how can it be that there's something like that that changes and manifests its form? We have some of those things in nature already. A chameleon's a good example. It adjusts its form. There are there are octopus that do the same thing. They adjust their shape. They adjust their color. Uh, and they're temporary, too. You know, I talk about time beings in the book. Uh, I know we'll get to that at some point. But uh, but it's temporary. And in the case of these manifestations of energy, that's really what it is. We have an energy manifestation. People say, oh, but it doesn't last very long and so on. Well, everything is temporary. We are temporary. Everything is temporary. It's just they don't last as long as we do normally. Uh, all of these interactions are temporary. You never hear of, say, a farmer who goes out back of his farmhouse and sees a flying saucer and an alien walks out and he says, hey, wait a minute. And he makes phone calls and calls all of his friends over and they come over to the farm, you know, and bang on the side of it and talk to him. That never happens. Yeah. Never. Uh, so it's it's always temporary. Uh, it's always kind of intruding into our reality, which is the whole idea of time beings. Well, it's also, uh, there are repeated areas like Hopkinsville, like Skinwalker Ranch, those window areas where stuff happens more often or for slightly longer periods. Yes. Uh, Yes, those window areas, uh, both Andrew and I and Paul Devereaux, I think, was the person who really uh, did most of the initial research. (coughs) Excuse me. Devereaux did most of the original research uh, and basically showed that these window areas Meaning, and Andrew likes to call them portals, it's a place where these manifestations occur over and over and over, over long periods of time. The U.S. has got quite a few of these places, but those areas have certain geological anomalies, such as a lot of granite under the surface, a lot of what's called tectonic strain which actually was one of Michael Persinger's main interests in all of this, of Mm -hmm. the research he did with this. 
Uh, and there are crystalline formations, which basically is what granite is anyway. But there's a lot of pure crystals generally in the area. Uh, and those have a great deal to do with creating these electromagnetic, I'll call them portals now, uh, but ways that this energy can manifest. And it sounds crazy and it sounds new age, but it's not. Uh, it has a very firm basis in geological research and uh, in psychological research, it has a really firm base. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and Persinger, Persinger did such great work uh, with the God helmet and stuff. And yeah. so many people in the paranormal just don't even pay attention to it. Well, Persinger died a few years ago. Yeah. I knew Persinger. I didn't know him well. He was a colleague. We both published in the same journals. Uh, Persinger referenced some of my work. I referenced uh, a lot of his work. Uh, and I believe that Persinger was funded through um, the U.S. government. Uh, I think a lot of this research was funded through it. And the Navy in particular uh, utilized a lot of his research to create the many devices that they have around today. But, yeah, Persinger is generally ignored. Uh, if you go on skeptics' websites, they will say Persinger was a crackpot, which he certainly was not. Uh, and I think some of that is because the skeptics really don't understand that research. Uh, and I've said many times before that it is a it's a lot more comforting to people to say absolutely nothing's out there. It's all nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also comforting for, to people to say everything we're seeing and interacting with is aliens visiting. Yes. Rather than saying we are dealing with something that is so weird and bizarre and uncontrollable that it's almost impossible for us to have an understanding of it. And I think that's the third thing there, that we're dealing with something weird, very weird, and almost not, we simply can't comprehend it, uh, that that's pretty disconcerting to people. It can upset a lot of people. So it's a lot better just to deny it all, which is what skeptics do. And I, that's funny, because I said almost that exact thing a few weeks ago on the show, that people need security, and it doesn't matter if it's the security of disbelieving it all, or the security of believing, no, it's extraterrestrial, or it's a flesh and blood ape, or whatever, but, you know, that way, we understand it. It's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the Native American concept of reality, and the, the three worlds and such. Well, that was my primary interest in all of this, and in the prior book that we did, um, Denise of an Origins, I really focused on uh, Native Americans. And this was really a follow up to that because I didn't get to do the same thing with Denise of an origins. We didn't have I didn't have enough space to really say all this. So <clears throat> there are there are two types of Native American mythology and lore. The type almost everybody knows about and is familiar with are called commonplace myths. Commonplace myths are available in loads of books, modern books. You can find them in almost any bookstore. They tell stories about animals. Uh, they tell stories about uh, different things about hunters and tribes and so on. They tell about the stars and they talk about star beings and all that. And uh, they'll talk about creation where um, there was a chief and his wife that lived in the heavens. And the chief pulled up a um, he, he pulled a tree out of the ground and it created a hole and his wife fell through and he went down. And that's how people started on Earth or there was a turtle. Those are all commonplace myths. They were told around the campfire. Almost all of them were told to children. 
Uh, like I said, they're widely available, and they are the stories almost everybody knows. They're they're amazing. Uh, they are stories about uh, morals, right and wrong. Uh, the stories about animals teach about hunting. They teach about the wiles that various animals have. Uh, so they're instructive in their nature. However, there is a second type of knowledge. I didn't come up with these names. Uh, these were ethnologists that came up with these names. The other type is called sacred knowledge. Sacred knowledge was hidden from the masses. It's not widely disseminated. A lot of it is available now, but it's only been in the past few years where it's become fairly widely available. The sacred knowledge that I'm going to talk about comes from uh, several groups. One of them were America's mound-building populations. The mound-builders were active mainly from roughly 3000 B.C. till the time that the first Europeans started trekking through North America, which is basically around uh, 1539 or so is when they started dying out. Uh, but the mound-building population did leave us a lot of information, as did the Hopi and the Zuni tribes. A lot of their information was written down by ethnographers in the 1700s and 1800s. Most of those books were not, have not yet been digitized, but those that are, uh, it's they've only been digitized for maybe the last five years or so. So they're available mainly in, in university libraries. So they told a lot of the information to the early ethnographers. So here's the story. Native Americans have a creation myth that explains everything. So their creation myth starts with a singularity of energy, a small single point of energy like the Big Bang. And this and the word singularity is not my interpretation. It is the exact word that the ethnographers used in the translation. So there was a singularity of pure spiritual energy. And for whatever reason, this singularity developed two sort of opposing but imbalance forces. And of course, you can't have a singularity that has two forces. It's no longer a singularity. And in the moment that these two forces occurred, that caused the Big Bang and it created everything. The Zuni, in the ancient Zuni literature, the Zuni called this singularity a container of all. And they said that the universe was created when this container of all, which was a point of spiritual energy, thought outward. It thought outward. I mean, that's a great explanation of the Big Bang to me. So when it did, uh, when it thought outward or when this Big Bang occurred, it created a three-part universe. And again, this is where the common myths get mixed with the sacred literature. The common myths talk about a three-part world, an upper world, a lower world, and a middle world. The upper world is defined, I mean, they, they had symbols for their upper world, and they were mainly birds, like huge raptor birds, like eagles or hawks. Uh, in some countries, they were swans. Uh, in some places, they were vultures. Uh, large birds were seen as associated with the upper world. So, too, was the sun. The upper world is all about the process of creation and harmony. Creation and harmony is in the upper world. The sun, for example, is one of the main components of the upper world. It wasn't a god. They didn't worship the sun they worship the part or the power behind the sun.
but the sun was very regular and very orderly. They could tell uh, that it was going to come up every day. They knew exactly where it was going to come up and they knew where it was going to set year after year after year. So it was very orderly. The lower world was represented by the power of entropy. Now, they called it disharmony. I have chosen the word entropy on purpose because in the term of disharmony, all things get old. All things degrade back to their most primordial nature. No matter what is created in this universe, eventually it degrades back in a, in a non-stoppable process back to its original form. So the Native Americans saw this upper world of creation and this lower world of entropy. Those were the two forces. And within the middle of these two great forces or powers was the physical world. The physical world they saw as a three-dimensional, two-sided mirror, three-dimensional, two-sided mirror. And it was created as a place where the upper world and the lower world could interact in harmony. That is their idea. So everything is made out of spiritual energy. Everything is spiritual in its nature. In their concept, earth, dirt, it's the most primordial type of spiritual energy, very primordial. They knew that we came from dust and we returned to dust. Mounds were built out of earth, earthworks were made, linear earthworks, all used in rituals because it was the most primordial form of energy. Rocks are solidified energy. Crystals are a type of purified and dense energy, which is actually true. Crystals are filled with energy, which uh, there are ways to easy ways to demonstrate that. Water is flowing energy, and fire is the release of energy but it's all spiritual in nature. So they saw humans coming to this planet. Humans were placed here. Again, we are spiritual ourselves, but we're made out of this physical matter. So we're, we have a spiritual nature that comes from the upper world and it occupies or inhabits the, this physical body that we have. And our role here is to maintain harmony. That is, that is the essence of the deepest and most sacred spiritual knowledge that they held. Uh, I've often wondered, should I tell this story? But I think it's so important, and I think their beliefs are so overlooked and actually ridiculed often as savage that they need to be told. Absolutely. Yeah, you also talk about them uh, saying we have two parts to a soul, a life soul yes. and a free soul, which I really like that, too. Yeah, that's the same thing the Egyptians believe. When Graham yeah. Hancock read, uh, it was a book called Path of Souls, and then I have a mound encyclopedia that he had, too. Uh, his book, America Before, contains some of this information in it, and he says it's exactly like Egypt. Yeah. So in Egypt, you have a Ka and a Ba, but it, here in the Native American tradition, you have a life soul and you have a free soul. And as I said, the Native Americans recognize that we are made out of earth. We, we come from dust and we'll go back to dust. That is called the life soul. And they saw the physical body as being animated by the life soul, that when you get this primordial matter of earth, and it brings in other minerals and so on. And water, you know, remember, I said water is flowing energy. Uh, you bring all this together and we're born and we are physical in nature, that the body itself has a type of soul. It has its own spiritual energy. And into that comes this free soul. 
So at the point of death, these two souls separate. The body has to be returned back to the earth one way or another. And the free soul, according to their belief system, takes a journey to the sky, which is called the uh, Path of Souls. And the Path of Souls journey is very, very, very well known, now accepted in mainstream archaeology and anthropology. It is a leap of the soul, uh, this free soul, which is pure spiritual energy, the leap of the soul it goes in Native American lore to Orion's Nebula, known as Messier 42. And from there, it goes under the earth, comes out the other side the next night. It hops onto the Milky Way, makes a trip up the Milky Way toward the north, eventually reaching a portal out of the upper world. The portal is believed to be in the constellation of Cygnus, which Andrew Collins has talked about in many, many books, yeah. and particularly the star Deneb. And from there, it goes to what they call the other world, which I have never really talked about very much. Uh, so that is this idea of two souls and the path of souls journey, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I've gotten into the rituals and the path of soul journey. Uh, very, very interesting. A lot of American, Native American earthworks and geometric earthworks were designed specifically to help the soul make this leap back to the sky world. What, why haven't you talked about the other world concept very much? Uh, there's not a lot written about it. I have talked to some Native American shaman, one of whom I talk about in the book in it. Uh, he was extremely... Um, hesitant to talk about the other world and when we got into this like where does the soul go when it leaves the sky world it doesn't it doesn't stay in orion it doesn't stay at cygnus and it doesn't stay in the milky way it goes through this portal and this portal leads to what they call the other world and they use the term when this was when when the early ethnographers asked them about it someone decided we'll just call it the happy hunting ground that was the oh. idea happy hunting ground that's where we're going everything's fine it's a happy hunting ground but it's real similar the concept is very similar to the ancient Hebrew concept of the guff. Wow. Uh, there's a movie, I think it's called The Seventh, Seventh Sign. Yeah, 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 and it talks about the guff in it. And the guff is a real concept in really old Jewish literature. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is a container of souls. It's the place where all the souls are kept, uh, and it's the place where souls supposedly return. Uh, so Native Americans had that same concept. They did believe that reincarnation was possible. They also believed in uh, resurrection of the actual body in some cases. That is why some of the mounds have these giant stone tombs in them that look identical to a lot of the stone chambers that you find in the UK and other places in Europe. You know, people think those stone chambers are only found in Europe. Well, heck, they're in, they are inside of a lot of the Native American burial mounds. A lot of those have been uncovered. There's a lot of fascinating photos about them. I've, I've posted probably 20 or 30 photos of these stone chambers in American mounds uh, on Twitter and Facebook over the years. Uh, and I've put them in several books, too. Uh, and these were all excavated by the Smithsonian back in the, the ones I posted were excavated in the 1930s and 40s. But they had the same idea. They believed that some people they wanted to bring back. 
for example, chiefs, important shaman, uh, and they would be buried inside of a very elaborate tomb, a lot like the Egyptian pharaohs. But for everybody else, they used the process, really, of cremation. They burned the bodies. uh, They buried what was left of it. They buried the remains uh, and returned it to the earth. And the soul could return to earth and reincarnate but it couldn't resurrect back into the same body then. But some of the shaman and some of the priests and the chiefs, they hoped, could resurrect. And all this is stuff most people just are clueless about and probably really don't care because they think Native American stuff is not as interesting as yeah. the uh, information they get from other areas of the world. But it is. And it really is interesting. It's not that different either from, like, Egypt. No, it's not. And it's older than what's in Egypt. That's the yeah. thing. The oldest mounds in the world are in the Americas. They're not over there. They're not in Turkey, and they are not uh, in Egypt. Uh, Egypt is, re- is in, in this sense, a relative newcomer. Oh, yeah. Well, what's... Which, uh, I, you know... I'm not putting down Egypt. I've, I've talked to Zahi Hawass. I can't say I know him very well, but I've talked to him. Uh, and I've been to a number of conferences where he presented in the States. Uh, and Zahi really doesn't care about anything but Egypt. And uh, I, I don't really want to put the man down. So I, I'll stop with All that. Right. All right. Um, you, now you say these are the oldest mounds. What's the oldest mounds we've discovered in uh, North America? Well, two weeks ago, uh, the Louisiana State University, two weeks, two weeks ago, Louisiana State University announced that there are two mounds on the campus. Now, I taught at LSU for two years, uh, and that, that was in uh, 1994 to 96 I taught there. And on the main campus of LSU in Baton Rouge are two mounds that have long been thought to be archaic mounds. Archaic mounds are thought to be around 4000 B.C. or 3800 B.C. So up until two weeks ago, the oldest mound uh, in North America was considered to go back to about 4000 B.C. or so. Whereas in South America, they go back to around 10,000 B.C. However, like I said, two weeks ago, LSU announced uh, it was a paper published in mainstream archaeological peer-reviewed journal. It had 11 authors on it, 11, and they announced that the LSU mounds have now been radiocarbon dated to 10,000 B.C., 10,000 B.C. Uh, And what that will do is uh, a lot of people will return to the dozens and dozens of archaic mounds in the southeastern states and decide to go in and try to redate a lot of them. Uh, And I mean, it's very good research. Uh, It has kind of changed the belief system. Uh, South America goes back. South American history goes back. And this is going to sound incredible to a lot of people. It was inhabited at a minimum of 50,000 years ago. Oh, yeah. South American archaeologists have said that for decades. Uh, 2004, we wrote a book about South America, and I was in contact with many South American archaeologists and geneticists, and they're very upset at North American archaeologists. Very upset because North American archaeologists don't believe any of it. Right. But in truth, South American stuff probably goes back to 200,000 years. Probably. Wow. wow. Okay. They're not people like us. No. When I say that, the people that were here then are probably not fully modern humans. I, but I, that's another story. I, I, I have no doubt that there was at least one advanced civilization in our past, if not similar, but it doesn't mean that they were advanced like us. 
It right. doesn't mean they had cell phones and televisions. They, they right. you know, I think people just can't imagine a quote advanced civilization being other anything other than what we have. Yeah. Well, that's again, it's belief systems and projection. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, that that really explains it. Uh, there's all these things in psychology that explain that. Uh, and even even Plato, you know, when you talk about Atlantis, uh, which I don't really want to get into much, but when you talk about Atlantis, people think, oh, you know, they had planes and they had submarines and they flew to outer space and all that. Plato didn't say any of that. No. It was a culture that had horses. Uh, they used shields. They had swords. They had uh, but they had they were seafaring. It was a yep. maritime culture. Right. Plato was talking about an empire of islands that had a maritime trading culture that went all over the world. Yep. And of course, a maritime culture in 10,000 BC was built along shorelines, just like most people in the world today live along coastal lines. Yeah. And if the sea if the sea levels suddenly rise 300 feet, all that stuff is underwater. Yep, all of it. And of course, it'll it'll degrade and I, we found lots of stuff that degraded underwater and all the research that we did in the Bahamas. We saw planes that had only crashed 10 years ago that were like everything was gone except for some of the aluminum. They just totally degrade underwater. Well, not only so, that, like, but again, that's another story. And not only that, but a, a you know, that that 300 foot sea rise wasn't a gradual, gentle thing, but most likely a, an, an enormous you know, explosion of water coming into the Atlantic, you know, swamping everything. So you also have right. that to deal with. Yes, it happened fast. That is what Plato said, uh, and the other people that have that have talked about Atlantis in various ways all have said the same thing. This happened very, very quickly, and even archaeologists today realize that what happened in 10,000 BC was very, very quick. Yeah, it didn't take years. It happened fast. So the path of the stars. Why do you think that's? I mean, what does that mean? Do you think it's meant to be taken literally? They took it literally. Native Americans literally believe in that. They literally believe that yes, we have a we have a soul that is pure spiritual energy and it goes to the sky. Uh exactly why they came up with Orion and Cygnus uh it was the book Denisovan, Denisovan Origins that Andrew and I put out in 2019. In that, uh, I did calculations and showed that uh, in in 10,000 B, well, 17,000 years ago, 17,000 years ago, Deneb, the brightest star of the Cygnus constellation, was the North star and it's because of the precession of the equinoxes over a great a great great deal of time the stars uh, appear to move but it has to do with the wobble of the earth of course but anyway Cygnus and Deneb was the North Pole star so if you look due north you would see Deneb as the North Pole star and then if you turned around and looked due south you would see Orion's belt and Messier 42 hovering right above the horizon. Now, another interesting piece of this, that's when we believe that this idea of Path of Souls taking the journey from Orion to Cygnus developed. And of course, the Milky Way is what connects the two. The Milky Way would have been a band right over the top of the Earth going mm -hmm. around. And you would, you know, you'd look at Orion in the south and put your head up and just spin around and watch the Milky Way go all the way up to Cygnus. So it looked like a path. It looked like the stars were a path of souls. But if you think about the Earth's magnetic field, north and south, 
and you look at the lines of connection, go to the NASA website and look at the lines of connection and the movements of the magnetic fields north to south, I'm sorry, south to north, you will see something very strange. So it if what they say about the soul making this journey is literally true, then it may be that the soul follows the lines of magnetic fields. Mm. Uh, this is not in the book. This is stuff that I pulled out of the book simply because I didn't have enough room to put it all in. Huh. Okay. That's really interesting. Because that implies that the, the spiritual part of us is still restrained or connected to that physical until it actually leaves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That Now, shaman, uh, <coughs> excuse me, through the shamanic processes that they would use and employ, uh, there were methods through which they could allow the free soul to leave the physical body temporarily. And they would use, in, in the book, I call this the psychoid pull that goes through the earth. And the psychoid pull that goes through the earth, uh, in a lot of their rituals, they would literally take a huge wooden post and they would drive it into the earth pointing toward magnetic north. It would angle toward magnetic north. And that represented this psychoid pull. Remember, the word, the word psychoid means uh, something that is primarily unseen in the electromagnetic energy spectrum, that when it moves into the visible light spectrum, it can have a physicality. It becomes not just visible, but somewhat physical, even though it's temporary. So they would do this and do their rituals, and then they would use this pull like an elevator, and they could ascend to the upper world and interact with the forces of the upper world. On the other hand, uh, something that I almost never really talk about in detail and won't hear either, there were certain types of shaman that the Navajo would simply call a witch, uh, and they would employ this elevator to go down into the lower world where entropy and destruction is and disharmony is. Uh, and most witches would do this to bring ill luck or ill health uh, or bad things uh, to other people to happen. Yeah. Uh, and witches, that is what they did. They employed the pull like an elevator to go down instead of up. Uh, and according to their their belief system, once you have taken the pull down, uh, you really can't ascend up the pull. You are forever a witch once you become one. Huh. All right. Uh, one of the things I definitely wanted to get to here, um, flashes of light that happen along with paranormal experiences. And I've had these. Uh, John Keel talks about having them every time he moved, I believe he said said uh but all kinds of flashes of light light is one of the things that that over the course of the, doing the show we've focused in on being one of the most common elements of paranormal experiences absolutely well okay so i'll tell you a little this is in the book uh 2013 the edgar mitchell foundation uh did a study on 3256 uh, UFO experiencers who saw entities and interacted with entities, 3,256 people. And so they did some psychological evaluations in them. They found that these people were very, very normal. They did not have mental illness to any degree above the normal population. So the reason I brought this up is because what they saw, what the most consistent thing they all saw 
was a flash of light. They'd see brilliant lights, orbs of light, and sometimes within those lights would be beings, translucent beings sometimes. And they said the beings, the most frequent way that the beings would communicate with them is through what they would call telepathy, that the beings communicate mentally with us. Well, that's the case with almost all modern UFO reports that have any probable legitimacy to them. It's about light. Even Whitley Strieber's experiences started with light. Everybody that I've talked to that is a UFO experiencer, it's always involving a flash of light. And that's where you get into plasmas. Uh, I don't think it's a mental thing in terms of that. I mean, I don't think it's something going on in your brain where your brain is producing artificially a flash of light in what's called the visual cortex. I don't think that's happening. I think that something uh, like a plasma is manifesting and that is what people are seeing. I hope I answered what you asked. Yes, yes. I, I had an ex one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had was walking out back of my property. It's very dark out there. And I kept getting flashes of light. And the whole landscape would light up like someone took a photo, like with like flash bulb. Yeah. And uh, this is like two in the morning or something. And out in the field behind my house, there's a, there's a point of light that's never been there before. Never been there since. Blinking on and off in like seven second intervals, like on seven seconds, off seven seconds. Hmm. If I looked directly at it, once it went off, it wouldn't come on until I looked away. And Interesting. The weirdest part of all this is I looked up and there was like this big full moon uh, and clouds start covering the moon and the moon pops through the clouds and starts shaking. Huh. And I would look away, and I'd be like, okay, that's an optical illusion. And I'd look back, and the, cloud, the moon would be behind the clouds, and then it would pop through the clouds and start shaking. And I'm like, well, that's impossible. I have no idea what's going on right now. Interesting. But those flashes of light and the light in the field, eventually I'm like, this was something to do with that light, you know? Yeah. Okay. So there are so many people that report things like that. Uh, there's so many famous people that have experiences like that. I met, In the book, I mentioned Emanuel Swedenborg. Oh, yeah. I also mentioned Joan of Arc. I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, Edgar Casey. All three of those people had their experiences uh, through light. They saw these brilliant flashes of light. That's how they all started down this road of interacting with the entities. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Swedenborg, back in 1743, the entities told Swedenborg point blank that we are from other planets. They even took Swedenborg to the other planets. They took him all the way to Saturn uh, and he went to all he went to all the other planets like the, uh, he went to Mars, uh, Mercury, Venus, uh, didn't go to Jupiter. That's the only one that as far as I know that he didn't go to. Right. Uh, but Swedenborg interacted with these. Anti I mean, he was a famous, famous scientist. He interacted with these beings for 28 years and wrote numerous books about it. And, of course, I call Swedenborg the first contactee yeah. because everything that happened to that man over you know, almost 300 years ago is identical to what happens to modern contactees. And Joan of Arc, St. Joan of Arc, she saw flashes of light when it began. And within those flashes of light, then entities began to appear and speak to her. The same thing happened to Edgar Casey. Uh, I, I don't really want to, I mean, we could spend hours talking about any of these individuals, oh, yeah, yeah. but almost everybody 
who has an interaction and ancient reports with interactions with angels or entities like this, light is always one of the key things that occurs, at least in the beginning of the interaction. Uh, and so but we see the light as plasma manifesting. I have called them time being spelled T-I-I-M-E. It stands for transient or temp transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. It's transient because it doesn't always last. It doesn't last very long ever, no. uh, but it's transient. It's an intrusion. It's something that pops into what we perceive as our reality. It's intelligent, and we know plasmas have some form of intelligence. They interact with us, and we can get into that if you want to in the, in the last time we have, or we can save that for your Patreon. That's up to you. Um, the, it, it is a manifestation of energy, and we believe the energy itself is a plasma. And, of course, we haven't defined a plasma. Uh, so should I do that now, or do you want to wait on that? Yeah, let, let, yeah let's get into the plasma stuff. So, All right, well— the plasma, when I started college, uh, I'm pretty old, so when I started college, uh, I took one physics class. Uh, psychology was my major, and this, this was actually, it was 1969. That's a long time ago. Uh, so in the physics class, I remember plasma was in it, uh, and plasma was simply called an ionized ball of gas because they really didn't know much about it. But plasma is not really a ball of gas. It's a lot more than that. Uh, and in the 1950s a, and 60s, a debunker by the name of Philip Klass said that UFOs were nothing more than plasma manifestations. And in the UFO field, the word plasma became a dirty word. Uh, I, I, and he I, said, oh, they're seeing balls of lightning. You know, that's all they're seeing, a ball of lightning. That, and uh, I find and, that so ironic that he threw that out there to debunk it. And the, he, that may be part of a good part of the answer and not in the way he meant it. Yes, exactly. That That's the point. But it's still a dirty word. I talked to Jacques Vallée uh, back in 2012. We spent hours together uh, at a... I picked him up at an airport and got him to go to a conference in Virginia Beach and got him to the airport. We went out and ate and sat the next day and watched a whole bunch of film together that he'd never seen and then talked. Uh, but Valley saw the word plasma. Uh, I mean, it was he, he disdained the word a lot because of Philip Klass. Uh, long involved story there. But a plasma today, uh, it's an ionized ball of energy. That's really the way to think about it. It's an ionized ball of energy. And it's a ball of free negative charged electrons and positively charged ions that have been freed. And they begin rotating and spinning around. And as it does, it ionizes, it heats up, and it creates a powerful electromagnetic field around it. So the energy to create a plasma has to come from somewhere. The U.S. Navy is using lasers to produce plasmas. That's how they produce them for the things that they have made technologically out of this research. Uh, but it creates this electromagnetic field and starts shooting photons out. And photons are light. So a plasma is this ionized ball of energy. And it has all these electrons and ions that are interacting, again, with a huge, huge electromagnetic, powerful electromagnetic field around it. Now, in 2007, there was a group of six physicists that published an article 
in the new journal of physics and it was all about plasmas and in it in that article they say point blank that plasmas have all of the characteristics of organic life but they're inorganic so the word plasma itself was was uh, assigned to this ball of energy by physicists because plasma actually had characteristics of blood plasma and blood cells. That's why they named it plasma. It is the fourth state of matter, unique in and of itself. So we have liquids and we have gases and we have solid matter. Those are the three states of matter. And then plasma is added to it. There is such a thing called dusty plasma and exotic plasma. Dusty plasma is when a plasma begins pulling in physical matter to it because of its electromagnetic field. It begins attracting physical matter, which could literally be dust. It could be dirt. It could be cosmic dust in it. Dusty Hmm. plasma can be picked up by radar. Dusty plasma takes on different shapes. It shoots out beams of light. In 2006, the uh, Project Condine put out by the the Ministry of Defense uh, of the UK, Project Condine said legitimate UFOs are all plasma. They said there were dusty plasmas being picked up on radar and there were exotic plasmas they don't understand. And in that report, they said it's likely that military research is ongoing with it or it's about to be ongoing. And of course, in the book, I talk some about that and say, yeah, yeah, it was ongoing at that time. But in this article, this new article, the physicists were saying point blank that it has the characteristics of life. It appears to interact with us. It forms when it forms. It creates what looks like a double helix in inside it, a double helix is essentially what would look like a ladder. And we have DNA in all of, not all of our cells, but most of our cells in our body. Uh, DNA is a double helix. And so what is it? Well, it looks like a ladder. There's two sides to the ladder. And then there's rungs of the ladder. In human DNA, there are three billion rungs. And the rungs are made up of amino acids clicking together. Three billion rungs. And then if you take this, this ladder and you start twisting it and you twist it and you twist it, that's a double helix. Okay, so and in human DNA, when you twist it, it pulls together into a little ball and goes into the shell, into the cell. But with the plasmas, they could see a double helix forming in it and they watched the double helix split itself down the middle. Exactly the same thing that happens in cellular reproduction in humans. And when it split, it formed another side and created two plasmas. That's reproduction. That's exactly what it is. And what they said is, if we could keep this, if we sustain the energy to this plasma long enough, it would probably become alive in ways that we would understand that it's alive and interact with us. So there's so many researchers that have said this stuff is all about plasmas. One one other one I talk about was a study done in Missouri by the chairperson of the Department of Physics of Southeastern State Missouri State University. His name was Harley Rutledge. He did a seven-year study in southeastern Missouri. He had over 600 observers, including uh, it was 50 to 60 scientists, which included astronomers 
and other physicists set up observation points using every kind of uh, electronic and scientific device that was available then to study all of the UFOs that were being seen in the area. It was one of the biggest UFO flaps in history. In fact, J. Allen Hynek went there. Uh, I spent several pages in the book describing all this. What yeah. Harley Rutledge determined was this. What we are seeing are plasmas. These plasmas are interacting with us. These plasmas appear to be intelligent. He, he checked with the military at the time. I did, too. I talked with the adjutant general of the Missouri National Guard many, many times because there there were these jets that come that often came into the area when Rutledge was studying these UFOs that were being seen. And he wondered, are these jets uh, having something to do with it or are they investigating it? And what the military was doing was trying to figure out what the heck they were seeing and picking up on radar. Mm. That's what was going on. But he said they're plasmas. And just like John Keel said, toward the end of Rutledge's book, which he published in 1980, I think it was 89 it came out, Rutledge said that if once you get interested in these things and they notice you noticing them, then they start paying attention to you. Yeah. And he said they followed him to his house. He started seeing them in the halls of the physics building, going <laughs> in and out of classrooms and following him. John Keel said the same thing. John Keel said, oh, yeah. once you notice this, if it notices you, it starts haunting you. That's the term that Keel used. He said, you will be haunted by it. Once you get into this, the deeper you get into it, the more it's going to start appearing to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you had a line in there that you said plasmas are formed. By a natural process. Absolutely. But, but so are we. I mean, so. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything is. Yeah. Um, you were listening to Where Did the Road Go on WVBR FM Ithaca. Check us out on the web at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. You can go to wheredidtheroadgo.com for everything Where Did the Road Go related. All the links to our social media, our Twitter, Patreon, YouTube, Facebook, Discord, everything. Everything is up there, as is every show since the very first show in January of 2013. You can download them all. There's plenty of other material to look through as well, and it's all at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Follow us on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. Join the Discord. Talk to us. If you want to contact me, the three main emails are contact at wheredidtheroadgo.com for general things, stories at wheredidtheroadgo.com if you want to send us some stories for our listener stories show, booking at wheredidtheroadgo.com if you want to come on the show because you're an author or a researcher and want to talk about your work. Those are the best ways to get in touch. I want to thank everyone that listens to this show, that is hearing this, uh, that has supported us in any way. And I particularly want to give a shout out to those Patreons pledging $10 or more Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, CJ, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Todd, 
James Lattimore, Jim Pyre, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Craig Cicernos, James Lindsay, Jay, Greg Sagstumi, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupree, Sam Sharon, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Also a special extra shout-out to Vincent Trewell, who does all the recaps of the shows that get posted on the website and YouTube. I thank you all so very, very much. This show would not be what it is without you. And now back to my conversation with Greg Little about plasma intelligences. The I feel like these things could be experiencing time on a very different level than we are. Uh, yes, that's what Andrew's part of the book is about. Yeah. Yeah. And that their intrusion, I mean, they're, 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 it probably takes a lot of energy for them to manifest to us to begin with. Um, and again, going back to like monster sightings, a lot of times there's this smell of sulfur in a lot of yep. paranormal encounters, which is the smell of decay, which makes me think that these things are, are manifesting temporarily and immediately start to decay when they're here. Yes. Well, the, the, the Yakima reports, it's another one that, that I discussed in the book, which researchers, also the scientists studying it said, these are plasmas. We don't understand what they are. But from 1957 till the 1980s, it, and in the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington state, there was one of the biggest UFO flaps ever. And it actually ended, or at least it paused after Mount St. Helens erupted. Mount St. Helens is not that far away from the Yakima Reservation. Uh, so on Yakima, everybody that saw them were, or the people that made most of the reports were fire lookouts. Uh, on the mountains that are there on the top, they have these fire lookouts on top of every mountain. And there's one particular ridge called Toppenish Ridge. I've been there lots of times, uh, spent a lot of time there. Uh, it is it is just loaded with over 100 earthquake fault lines that are totally visible. But what they saw over and over were lights manifesting, lights that would go into the sky, lights that would physically roll down the side of these mountains. At The, the reason I brought this up now is because at the base of the mountain, there are some Native Americans of the Yakima tribe that live there. And there were loads of reports coming from them. And the reports were of smelling sulfur, seeing Bigfoot, seeing creatures, other creatures at night that were eight feet tall with glowing red eyes mm -hmm. and lots of very bizarre sounds and interactions. And again, the, the scientific researchers there have all concluded it has to do with plasmas. And like you said, it takes a lot of energy. Well, tectonic strain, which is the crushing amount of energy that's being produced when uh, two different rock formations that are underground are pushing on each other, it produces electricity. It releases electrons. Those electrons have to go somewhere. They follow the path of least resistance and they emerge and then they can form plasmas. That's exactly what happens. 
Uh, and it was actually um, uh, Devereaux who came up with most of that. And he actually yeah. measured how much energy that they could produce. Uh, so if the plasmas could be maintained for a while, as long as they have enough energy, they can be maintained. And then I believe they create an interaction sphere. And what then manifests is partly coming from its observers, at least those that are in proximity to it. So I don't. I don't know how I got to that. It was something you said stimuli. Oh, the Bigfoot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the sulfur smell in general in paranormal encounters. Oh, absolutely. Well, the smell of sulfur. You know, plasmas are very hot. Uh, that's what ionization means. It's a very, very hot ball of gas. And it's also an explanation for why so many people that claim to have gotten close to UFOs uh, or these balls of light tend to have radiation burns on yeah. their face and hands. Anything that's exposed seems to get burned, and they often feel heat, which is exactly what you'd feel if you're near a plasma. Now, you also talk about how our military is likely working with this plasma technology, and that, uh, I mean, like, like for something like the Tic Tac UFO, could that be a plasma? Uh, well, it's not likely that they're doing it. Uh, they're doing it, and you can see what they're doing if oh, okay. you go onto the U.S. Uh, patent office website look them up <laughs> they have they have patented this stuff uh, I think they started this research back in the 70s. Uh, I tell a story about that in the book of the Office of Naval Research in Pensacola uh, and the work that I did for the Office of Naval Research as a as a contractor under a grant. Uh, for them and talking to some of their uh, young researchers, because I was pretty young then, uh, and that was 1972 and 73, at the beginning of graduate school. Uh, Persinger did some work on this, but what we know that the Navy's done, and I can go through just a list of them very easily, and they come up with these really cool terms. Like in the 1990s, they made what they call a pickle, P-I-K-L. Uh, and what it what it stands for is pulsed impulsive kill laser. Uh, they wanted to create a laser that would literally kill people. And it was designed to put a huge laser burst on people. But it took so much energy uh, and it was just impractical. Uh, so then in the 2000s, they developed what they called a PEP, which is a pulsed energy projectile, like a a fireball that they could shoot at a distant distant focal point. They tested it on animals and it could produce uh, all kinds of neurological impairment. And a lot of that research is available in uh, government repository libraries also, which I, I mentioned in the book. In, 19, in 2013, they made what they called a pass, uh, a pass, uh, they called it a plasma acoustic shield system, uh, which is a very strange thing. Uh, it, it would sustain a plasma in the air, and it's used by, it, it's made by a laser. You sustain a plasma in the air, and they could move it all over the place instantaneously. They could create multiple plasmas from the main plasma, make them merge together and so on and it's almost like you take the the a laser pointer although it's not this simple but you take a laser pointer you need a really powerful one and you create a focal point in the sky you create a focal point and you use the invisible light spectrum to do it you don't use visible light that way nobody can see the beam mm. uh, so they made that in 2013 uh the other thing that it could do um they took that and created what they called the LIPE. uh it is a 
life-induced plasma effect uh, from a laser, and it could produce a spoken message at a distance. Think about that. And, and it worked for a couple miles, a spoken message. Now, Michael Persinger in his labs, I'm certain this came from his research, in the labs, Persinger was able to do two things. He could focus electromagnetic fields on subjects, uh, undergraduate students in a laboratory setting, in a Faraday cage again. He could focus the electromagnetic field, and he could give them choices on a computer. And he could literally control the choice that they made in a, in a test where it would say choose A or B or A or B, A, B, C. And he could focus the electromagnetic field and force them to choose what he wanted them to choose. And he could also, with the same technology, put spoken words into their head. Yeah. Now, for years, I mean, I'm, I'm in the field of psychology. So uh, in the field of psychology, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I've talked to many, many schizophrenics. Well, they hear spoken messages. Uh, auditory hallucinations are the most common kind. Uh, and when they describe them, they say it sounds just like somebody speaking in my head. Well, that's exactly what this device does. And then in 18, they created the scuffles. This is my favorite thing. Uh, it is a scalable uh, duration device, uh, and it can send messages or it can create burns uh, at a long, long distance. So the last thing, in 2020, 2020, uh, the Popular Mechanics magazine published an article, and I'm not sure why uh, this came out. But anyway, they, they published an article and they talked about the Navy's plasma-based missile fooling technology. That was their term, plasma-based missile fooling technology. What it did, it was a laser and it could create three-dimensional objects in the air. They could make them rotate. They could make them move around as they directed. And, uh, you know, it's not, there's nobody in it, but it looks physically real. It is a dusty plasma that they create. They can make it rotate and move. It can move at impossible angles and speed because they're simply moving the laser device from whatever they're beaming it from. And it's picked up on radar. They can tune it to any electromagnetic frequency that they want. And the first place that I heard about this was in Forbes magazine when Forbes found the Navy's patent for it. And it sounds exactly like what is being reported by the Navy. Yeah. And so what I believe, I've said this many times, uh, this part is not in the book. This was part that I cut uh, because of uh, word limitations. But I believe that what the Tic Tacs are, I believe what the Navy is seeing is the testing of these devices. If you know about the way all of this occurred off of the carriers and so on and the jets, they were testing new radars. And the pilots, uh, it wouldn't have mattered if they shot at it, but it, this was all just testing stuff. That's what they were out doing along the coastal California in Florida. Also, a lot of these have been seen in Virginia Beach. And, and I don't think the pilots knew anything about it. I don't no. think the radar operators knew anything about it. I believe that there's black ops uh, and contractors that do this work. It'll never see the light of day. Uh, and they're simply testing, what does our radar see? How do pilots interpret it? How does the ship interpret it? Surely the captains would have been aware uh, that this testing was going on uh, to make sure that nobody did anything really stupid. But that's what I believe has is the source of that particular set of events. And again, yeah. that's not going to be very popular 
Um, <laughs> nobody's going to like that explanation. But if you look up the patents, well, there it is. And and if those are the ones you can actually find, imagine the stuff they have out there that they're working on that we don't know yes. about, that's buried in black projects and stuff. Well, I got aware of a lot of this quite by accident in the early 1990s when I stumbled into uh, what are called government repository libraries. They are, uh, you have to get access to it. It's not, none of it's online. And you can find specialized military journals, specialized journals uh, and reports that publish uh, these grant reports, but they are not widely available. Uh, and a lot of these reports don't really, I mean, they reference other grant uh, publications, like a university will get a grant to work on one little aspect of, say, one of these devices. Right. They don't even know what the device is used for. They're just working on one portion of it. But there's somebody that collates all that information and puts it all together. But we never see that. We never see those reports, the light of day. We do see the effects of it out in the real world, I believe, but we never see the actual reports. All right. Before we end this segment, um, I, I want you to describe the the puzzle concept that you, you sort of rephrased from August Roberts. Yeah. Uh, Augie Roberts, great guy. Um, he was one of the first UFO people. Well, what he, how he described it is this way. He said the UFO enigma is like a vast, vast jigsaw puzzle. And he'd say, he said, imagine a jigsaw puzzle that's spread out on the ground and it goes for miles and miles and miles. So far, you can never see all of it. And as you walk around on this puzzle and you look at pieces, you'll see people every now and then that uh, find a piece that fits and they go, oh, my God, I've solved the puzzle. But they've only <laughs> focused on one piece of the puzzle. And that's the way that I see the UFO field. Some of it is I do believe ancient aliens have been here. And in the book, I say why it has to do mainly with Carl Sagan. Uh, Carl Sagan believed in ancient aliens. Most people don't know that the greatest yeah. skeptic of all time believed that Earth has been visited. I also believe that there may be some some alien probes of some kind that from time to time check up on us. But that's so few and far between. It doesn't have much to do with. With the modern ufo field i believe a lot of it has to do with this with military research people uh, are observing a lot of things that are natural but not yet understood and a lot of it is plasma yeah but it's a gigantic gigantic field andrew goes into much depth into the physics into it being interdimensional and possibly sort of transcending time and space yeah, uh, but that's the jigsaw puzzle. It's an enormous puzzle, and we tried to cover all the pieces in this book. And it's and it's damn impressive. It really is. Well, um, thank you. I appreciate it very much, and it it has been a pleasure. And maybe we'll do this again. Well, the book is uh, Origins of the Gods. You and you and Andrew Collins. You're Gregory Little. Where can people follow you online? Well, the smartest thing to do is to Google my full name, Gregory L. Put my middle initial in, little. You'll see me right away. Uh, my um, resume is there if you want to see all that nonsense. 
uh, and books and so on. Uh, I, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and a, a website is apmagazine.info, apmagazine.info. I post regularly there and can be uh, contacted through that. Is is that Brent Rain's site? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, yeah, that is that is good old Brent. Brent and I have been friends since 1985. Nice. Love Brent. All right. Thank you. And we'll, we'll do a Patreon segment with you. All right. Thank you so much. Well, if you enjoyed that, there's a lengthy Patreon segment with Greg uh, that you will enjoy just as much. So uh, if you're not a patron, you can become one at the website, wheretotheroadgo.com, and just click on the big Patreon link. Uh, I, there's also a, uh, I now have a P.O. Box if you want to send the show anything. The P.O. Box is 444 Ovid, New York, 14521. I will be putting that on the website, so that info will be up there. So that is yet another way you can contact us. All contact info, social media links and stuff are on the website, as well as the Patreon link and shows going all the way back to the beginning. And also merchandise. So we're going to take you out with another new song from Vrangvent. This is V-R-A-N-G-V-E-N-D-T. And uh, their stuff is available on all the popular music services. This is a song called Breathe. I'll see you next time.
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.